Thanks for joining today. Our topic for today is ethics in New York workers' compensation cases. And before you jump out of the webinar and say, oh, boring, ethics, boring, uh, I'm going to really try to apply this as best I can to both sides. I'm going to talk about ethics for claimants counsel. I'm going to talk about ethics for defense counsel. And I'm going to talk about the special relationship that are afforded insurance defense counsels in all uh, defense matters. So let's jump in here today. And as always, when we're talking about uh, a topic in workers' compensation or we're talking about a topic in um, uh, we're always trying to talk about this from the perspective of how do we use this to move cases and how does this impact our case handling. So today's topic is ethics. Thanks for joining me today. It is November 20th. And let me just say right off the beginning, uh, thanks for joining me on what I know is a short week. When it's a short week like this, uh, we all have so much to do to clear off our desks and our and get things ready to go on that long weekend. And I hope everyone is able to uh, have a great long weekend uh, this week. So um, let's talk about what we're going to go through today. We're going to talk about where the ethical rules come from, which one applies to us in our workers' compensation case. And then I'm going to talk about uh, how these ethics rules apply and impact the handling of the cases for both claimants' counsel and for defense counsel. And the reason this is important is, you know, our job as defense attorneys, uh, part of our, our role, part of our professional role, is to make sure the other side, the claimant side, is uh, handling their claims ethically. And so in understanding what the ethical rules are and the boundaries for claimants' counsel is important for us to know in defending these cases. So uh, let's dive in. Um, here we go. Now, this is totally live, uh, so please feel free to ask your questions. There's a box you can type questions into me. And I will try to answer as many questions as I can at the end of this webinar. But this is totally live. It makes it so much more fun for everyone if you ask those questions. First thing I'm going to cover is where the ethic rules come from. And New York's workers' compensation is an interesting uh, sort of animal because there are so many different rules of professional conduct and guidelines and rulings that we have to be aware of. So most states have just rules of professional conduct, uh, and they're contained in different places. For example, in New Jersey, those rules of professional conduct are actually made part of the court rules. In New York, they are as well. They're inserted into uh, the, the civil rules and regulations, so they're at NYCRR 1200-SEC. And in uh, today's handouts, I put a copy of all of the uh, rules of professional conduct that apply to both claimants' attorneys and defense attorneys uh, who are handling New York workers' compensation cases. So those rules have the force of rules. So they have a lot of strength. You can um, cite to them, and they are precedential, meaning they have authority in our workers' compensation cases and the way we handle them. There's also lots of case law and decisional law, and I'm going to talk about some of the case law and decisional law. That's developed over the last 100 years. Remember, our workers' compensation statute's over 100 years old. Applying those ethical rules to counsel who are defending or prosecuting workers' compensation cases in this jurisdiction. There's also ethics opinions that impact our ability to practice law. And 
those ethics opinions are evolving. They're always changing, and they're trying to address changes in the law and changes in the way we practice. So, for example, when most attorneys started using emails 30 years ago, we got lots of ethics opinions about the use of email and who could be replied all to and those types of things and how that plays into things like maintaining client confidentiality. What do I expect to see in the future in regards to ethics rules? Well, I think we're going to see a lot of ethics rules evolving around the use of AI, particularly the use of AI in generating, developing, writing legal briefs, legal memos. In this jurisdiction, in New York, we've kind of been at the forefront of the uh, utilization of artificial intelligence or large language learning models in writing case briefs. And in fact, if you got my newsletter, you know, about a year ago, one of our adversary firms got in a lot of trouble for using AI to write a legal brief. And they were using ChatGPT3, uh, which, as we all know, was hallucinating and coming up with uh, case law, coming up with statutes that don't actually exist. Now, a lot of those um, errors that we were seeing people using the ChatGPT3 model has changed now that the ChatGPT4 model has come into more widespread use, and it's a lot more accurate, a lot less subject to hallucinations. But I think we're going to expect to see a lot of ethics opinions over the next year or two years about the use of AI in workers' compensation cases, particularly things like doing medical summarizations, IME cover letters, writing briefs, making submissions to court. Uh, there's also some workers' compensation law-specific provisions, and if you read through the New York workers' compensation law and the uh, regulations that govern practice before the board, so that's 12 NYCRR 300 at SEC, there's lots of additional burdens that are placed on counsel representing claimants or carriers before the workers' compensation board, so I'm going to talk about that. Finally, two other things. Now, these are not precedential but they are guidelines, right? So these are not real authority that we can rely upon, but they are guidelines. And the, the board itself, the Workers' Compensation Board in New York, has published standards for civility. And I've included them in today's handouts, a copy of the standards of civility, which were put on the board's website about a decade ago. And I have to be frank with you, they're almost acknowledged only in the breach of those ethics or rules about civility. But that's another source of guidelines for attorneys to be wary of. And then finally, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about subject number 046-124. If you're not familiar with this subject number, it's the one that really talks about how we are to interact with medical providers and medical professionals. And it applies to both uh, claimants counsel and it applies to defense counsel, the rules for how we're supposed to interact with medical providers. You know in this jurisdiction we're very curtailed or limited in how we can communicate with medical providers in a workers' compensation case. And so uh, understanding how that subject matter applies is useful. And I'm also going to cite to a case, uh, it's called Paksinski versus Zenos, in which we made some really great, got a real great board panel decision arguing that our adversary had abused the ethical guidelines regarding speaking to a medical care provider. So I'm going to also talk about that case as we develop this. Uh, finally, the last handout that I've put in today's presentation is my summary of ethics and how they apply in a workers' compensation context. So uh, there is a, it's going to be in the next um, version of our workers' compensation handbook, an entire chapter on ethics. Now, the reason we're talking about ethics is because you've got, I think of rules in a workers' compensation case as opportunities 
And I'm going to point out, as I go through this presentation today, the areas where the claimant's attorney has an opportunity to maybe make a mistake from an ethical perspective that we can use to leverage towards a closure, get some momentum in our case. So I want to talk about how that works. So let's start by talking about ethical issues for claimant's attorneys. Now, New York's got an interesting inception uh, uh, threshold for how a case gets started by a claimant's attorney. In many jurisdictions, the attorney needs to get assigned retainer, uh, maybe an acknowledgement from their client, and oftentimes has to sign pleadings or have their client sign a complaint uh, or in other jurisdictions a claim form. In New York, the inception of the attorney-client relationship for the claimant starts with the filing of a notice of representation. And the board has uh, created a document called an OC400 that the claimant's attorney must complete and file with the board. So that's interesting. It, the uh, uh, beginning of their interaction with their claimant is them, the claimant's attorney, filing that OC400. There does not have to be a filed pleading, a sworn affidavit, a complaint, bill of particulars, any of the other things that you see in other jurisdictions, simply the filing of a simple form. Now, it's our expectation, and I've never represented claimants, that most claimants' counsel are not also executing other additional retainers or agreements. And the reason for that is because the fees are set by the workers' compensation judge. So the claimant's attorney cannot have their client sign uh, retainer agreements, which set forth a fee schedule or agrees to certain fee splitting, because that's all going to be set by the judge. How do they get out of a case? Well, there's really two ways that a claimant's attorney can get out of a case under the rules of ethics. The first is uh, they can find some other attorney to substitute in for them, and that's really the preferred method under the workers' compensation rules. Uh, they can substitute out. A new attorney would file an OC-400 indicating that they are substituting into a case. And at that moment, claimant's counsel is now withdrawn. They're, they're released. They're no longer responsible. Now, they're still going to owe a lot of ethical duties to their former client, and I'll talk about those in a second, but now they are no longer responsible for the outcome of a case. They can also seek to be terminated as counsel. They can go and, and file a form before the workers' compensation judge and say, Judge, I no longer want to represent this claimant. And if they file that form and upon five days of notice, the workers' compensation judge, judge sorry, not George, judge, can approve that withdrawal from the um, representation. However, it has to be approved by the judge of compensation. And the reason for that is the judges of compensation do not like situations where claimant's counsel is representing their client and then withdraws or gets out of the case and leaves the client pro se. Uh, nobody likes dealing with pro se claimants, particularly not the workers' compensation courts. They prefer to have counsel in there ably representing the claimant. And so for that reason, uh, they're going to look at the reasons for the withdrawal, and they have the opportunity to approve or disapprove it. Now, once that representation has started with, with uh, claimant's counsel, they are required under the Rules of Professional Conduct, Rule 1.4, to keep their client, quote, reasonably informed, close quote. Now, if you're wondering, what does the word reasonably informed mean? Greg, that seems like one of those lawyer weasel words that could mean anything. Uh, the uh, court guidelines and the ethics opinions have, are legion. There's so many of them talking about what is reasonable informed mean. It really means the lawyer has to take the time to directly explain options 
to their own client. They've got to keep them up to date as to what's going on with milestones in their case, but also has got to keep them up to date with their choices in a case. Of course, they have an ethical duty under Rule 1.4 to also bring all settlement offers to their client. And of course, they have to keep them informed of those offers and they can provide advice. They can say, look, uh, you know, the carrier just made an offer to settle your case for $50,000 pursuant to Section 32. They have to explain what is a Section 32. It's a lump sum dismissal. What does this mean for your future rights? And then they can provide their recommendation, but they have an absolute duty to bring those settlement offers directly to their client and explain to their client what those settlement offers are, what they mean, and what that means for their future, particularly in terms of medical care and indemnity benefits. Now, in addition to the rule of professional conduct 1.4, there's also board regulations that require contact between the attorney and their own client. So those regulations say they have to keep their client informed. Now, this seems very basic, and I know everybody listening to this is like, Greg, we know this stuff. But actually, this is one of the biggest sources of issues and the biggest sources of ethics complaints filed against uh, plaintiff's attorneys out there. It's failure to keep them informed as to what's going on in their own case. The ethics rules also cover things like pre-litigation contact with adversaries or potential adversaries. So you've all probably received a phone call or, or had contact with a claimant's attorney where they say something like, hey, this person came into my office. Uh, they say they work for your this, this employer, and they say they got injured at work. And I'm calling to see, has the claim form been filed? Have you guys done anything with the claim? What's going on with this case? And oftentimes it won't be the attorney contacting you. It will be somebody from their office. Also, by the way, every member of an attorney's office, whether that's plaintiff side or defense side, is obliged or required to file, follow the same rules of professional conduct as an attorney. And in fact, an attorney cannot ask someone in their office to go and do something that would violate a rule of professional conduct, something the attorney themselves could not do. So keep that one in the back of your mind. Um, now, uh, pre-litigation contact is allowed, but the attorney needs to identify to you, and they can't trick you, they can't mislead you or conceal anything. They have to tell you, I've been retained to handle a workers' compensation claim. It's potentially going to be brought by your employee, and here's the information I'm looking for. Oftentimes, it's wage information. It's was there a first reported injury filed? Uh, how much was this person earning? Uh, do you have any initial medical records? That type of stuff. And that's all allowed under the rules of professional conduct. Now, claimants attorneys have to be very careful about this pre-litigation conduct. And again, this happens all the time in many cases. I get phone calls even from plaintiff's attorneys. So I haven't filed a claim yet. This person just came in my office, but I think you represent this employer. I've got some questions, and here's where we're going with this, right? They can do all those things, but they also have to be very guarded about um, exposing information, confidential information, that is not in their own client's best interest. So even though they have this duty to disclose who they're calling for and on behalf of whom and what they're asking for, they have also a duty to not divulge too much information to you. So just be careful about this pre-litigation content. Now, most important to me, and the, really the place we focus a lot in our practice, is on contact with physicians and experts. So there are both statutory law, there's guidelines, there's regulations uh, that all covers the type of interaction that either side is allowed to have with a treating physician. Now, uh, Section 13A of the Workers' Compensation Statute says that 
and this applies to everybody, any interference by any person with the selection by the injured employee of an authorized physician uh, or the improper influencing or attempt by any person to improperly influence the medical opinion of any physician shall be a misdemeanor. Okay, so it's not even just an ethics violation. It's actually a crime to do this. Okay, and the, and the crime is called improper influence or undue influence. And there's lots of cases that have developed uh, under this scenario. And we all know, understand that this is, this is an issue of fundamental fairness, right? We are not uh, on the defense side or the carrier side. We're not allowed to contact medical providers and, uh, and call them up and attempt to sway their opinion, to feed them nuggets of information with the purpose of swaying or influencing their proposed treatment course. But either is claimant's attorney. Right? They're not supposed to have that kind of influence. They're not supposed to do it. Um, now, if it happens, you have a lot of recourse. If you discover, wait a second, plaintiff's attorney, claimant's counsel is calling up the doctor and telling them facts or attempting to sway their opinion or even suggesting things to them, saying things like, hey, don't you think this person needs an MRI or don't you think this person would benefit from seeing another surgeon? All that stuff is improper, and it's all undue influence, and it should all be policed and challenged. And you can bring challenges under that. I'm going to talk about how we do that in a second. So you've got a statute that says either side is not supposed to be contacting the doctors for the purpose of undue influencing them. Now, uh, how do you cure this, or how do you have contact with the doctors? And the answer is typically we tell our clients, when you have contact with the physician, you have a question that needs to be answered or you need them to address something specific or you want them to address causal relationship, do it in writing. Copy the other side. If the other side is copied on your communication with a medical provider, that's safe. That's not an undue influence. You didn't do anything under the table. You weren't trying to sneak in additional information. Uh, you were trying to provide them with uh, some maybe some specific information they didn't have, or get them to address a specific question. And that's a-okay under the statute as long as you copy in the other side. Okay, um, how about um, Section 137 of the Workers' Compensation Law? And again, this is a statute. It says two things. One, um, any time that the doctor is being asked to provide an opinion, particularly an independent medical opinion, the petitioner has to give a copy of that request to the physician to everyone, uh, uh, sorry, the claimant has to provide that, or the defense, and that practitioner, the person who's actually performing the examination, has to give their written report to all parties within 10 days of the request, and it has to be provided to them all at the same time, okay? That's really key. Uh, any materials that are gonna be provided to that doctor asking them to give their opinion about causal relationship, maybe the nature and extent of permanent residual disability or temporary impairment, that all has to be out in the open and copied to all parties. Um, now, there's also board rules about this. So now I've, I've gone through the two statutes. Now let's go through the board rules that cover this. The board rules, 300.2 states, that any party, including the claimant or the insurance carrier, um, that requests information or has any communication with the doctors, they have to copy all of that to every party in the case, okay? So that even a request, some simple requests have to be copied to everyone. That's fair. Now, what's the penalties? 
if a party or their representative contacts a healthcare professional without giving notice to opposing parties, the evidence, okay, meaning the medical records from that doctor can be precluded. Okay, they can be thrown out. So uh, one of the standard questions that your counsel should be asking when they depose a treating physician, they should say, have you had any contact with claimant's attorney? Have you had any contact with anybody else? Have you had contact with anybody that's not the claimant uh, about the contents of your opinions, about the treatment in this case, or about your testimony today? And if the doctor says yes to that, your next action, the next action for the defense counsel should be to say, well, I'm going to move to preclude all of this doctor's testimony, and I'm going to move to throw out all of their medical records. Oftentimes, by throwing out their medical records, you destroy their entire case because the, the medical records are the foundation of the workers' compensation case. Um, also, if that happens, uh, you find out that there's been undue influence uh, or they've been contacting the doctor on the side or concealing things, uh, you can move to have that doctor's cross-examination be stricken. No one should be allowed to uh, cross-examine. And there's case law that stands for this proposition. Verbal discussions between claimant's counsel and the treating physician that are not part of the record and not provided to all parties is basis for preclusion. Now, the board panel decision I'm citing for that proposition, that's my case. It was called Paksinski versus Zenos. It's a decision from more than 10 years ago. And we made an argument. I said, Judge, I deposed this doctor. When I put the doctor on the stand, I asked them, have you had contact with claimant's counsel? And, claim, and the doctor said, yeah, I have. They, they did contact me. They said, hey, you're going to testify in this case. And we went over a little bit about what my testimony was going to be. And I said, judge, that's undue influence. The judge agreed, precluded that doctor's opinion, said their testimony cannot go forward, and we're throwing out all their medical records, which had the effect of basically throwing out their entire case. So that's very powerful. Now, in that case, it was interesting because claimant's attorney was representing the claimant both in the workers' compensation proceeding and was representing them in a civil action against a different entity. Okay, so that attorney was wearing two hats. Claimant's counsel was representing them in workers' compensation court, and that was the doctor for the, that, for the workers' compensation matter. But they also had a civil action against different parties that they were also representing the same claimant for. So after the doctor admitted in their testimony that they had had ex parte communication with treating, uh, with the, I'm sorry, with the claimant's attorney, the claimant's attorney argued, well, yeah, judge, but in the civil action, I am allowed to talk to the treating physicians. And that's true. In a civil action, the rules governing civil actions in New York, the CPLR rules, do not forbid a plaintiff's attorney from communicating directly with the treating physician in the case. There's nothing about that in a civil action. And so the attorney said, well, judge, I wasn't communicating with him, uh, meaning the doctor, about their testimony in the workers' comp case. I was asking them questions pertaining to their treatment and the recommended treatment course because, Judge, I represent them in a different context. Well, the judge didn't fall for that, and obviously we argued quite strenuously against it. I said, Judge, just because you're representing them in multiple actions against different parties doesn't mean you can flout or ignore the ethics rules in a workers' compensation case. The judge agreed with me, and that went up to the board panel, and the board panel agreed with us. Okay, so you're going to see some creative arguments from the other side as to why they should be allowed to communicate with these physicians. And it's going to be really up to us to make strenuous arguments as to why they should not do it and then move for that limitation of throwing out those records. 
that is super powerful. That's an example of how you can use an ethical rule, right, which read by itself doesn't seem like it's that key to the defense of the case. But you could take that ethical rule and turn it into massive leverage in your workers' comp case because once your workers' comp case, all the medical records get thrown out, guess what? They don't have much of a workers' comp case left anymore. Uh, Claimants' counsel also has to be mindful of conflicts of interest, and I just kind of talked about one. Um, just like any attorney has to run a conflicts check, we certainly do run conflicts check anytime a new case comes in. They have to disclose to their client if they do have a conflict of interest. Now, what kind of conflicts arise? Well, a financial relationship with the treating physician. Just like defense counsel spends a lot of time, effort, money, blood, and treasure trying to uh, appeal to new clients, right? Marketing and sales is part of what a defense organization typically does. Claimants attorneys generally focus on recruiting doctors to be referral sources for them. That's their most effective way of getting new cases. And so over time, they, gen- they tend to develop financial relationships with these physicians, and that's something we should key into. Even things like taking them out to dinner, taking them for golf events, um, you know, organizing events for the staff of their offices, that should all be inquired about as grounds for potentially precluding the doctor for an ethics breach. Uh, obviously, other things like conflicts of interest, like they've previously represented the employer, you know, they were previously defense counsel or represented that employer in other contexts, and then any other general conflict that you can see uh, that would be uh, give rise to a conflict of interest. The rules also require, and these are the rules of professional conduct, so again, they have the force of authority and precedent, saying uh, that the, the parties have to be honest, they have to be um, straightforward with both the judge and the other parties in the case. Uh, the attorney cannot make a misstatement of fact or law, okay? That's fundamental fairness, and it's, it's, it's enshrined in our workers' compensation rules as well as the rules of ethics. Um, and they also means they can't um, ask someone else to make a misrepresentation of fact or law, right? Uh, they cannot, for example, produce perjured testimony. That's an ethical breach on behalf of the attorney. Now, where that happens, where you discover there's concealment or fraud, or the attorney has been uh, counseling their uh, client to conceal things, that's an ethical breach, and that should be raised in the workers' compensation context, and a complaint should be filed with the attorney grievance committee as well. All right. Ethical issues are not just limited to claimants' attorneys. In fact, defense counsel in workers' compensation matters have all of the same duties of a claimant's attorney, plus a lot more. So let's talk about that. First, uh, uh, defense counsel, where there is an insured and an insurer, have something called a tripartite relationship between the parties. So this is one of the few areas of law, uh, insurance defense, is one of the very few areas where attorneys are allowed to represent multiple parties at the same time. And so... The idea of a triadic or tripartite relationship has been um, at, at least acknowledged in the law since the late 1950s. 1954 is for the first time this was acknowledged. And it's because defense counsel are not just representing the employer in the workers' compensation case. We're also representing their carrier, too. And oftentimes I'm retained directly by the carrier to step in and defend their employer. And so we always have two masters whenever there is an insured Situation. The first master is the employer or the direct client. Uh, and the second master is that insurance company. And, 
you know, that insurance company, we might have the longer running relationship with the insurance carrier because they're referring us not one case a year, maybe not 10 cases, maybe 100 cases they're sending to us a year. Uh, and we might have a long-standing financial relationship with them. In fact, we might have separate billing and payment arrangements with those carriers, right? That's a natural thing that develops. And so the case law has developed since the 1950s, recognizing that insurance defense counsel are often representing two clients at once. Again, the employer as well as the insurance carrier. So this triadic or tripartite relationship is well-recognized in law, and most jurisdictions understand that, hey, this is something that happens. I have different duties. Now, I'm counsel to the insured, the direct employer. Every case I've ever read says my first duty is to that insured. In other words, I owe the highest level of fidelity and duty to the actual employer. The court, the Supreme Court in New York said in the Global Aircraft Air Specialties case, quote, when counsel, although paid by the casualty company, undertakes to represent the policyholder and files his notice of appearance, he owes to his client, the assured, meaning the employer, an undeviating and single allegiance. His fealty embraces the requirement to produce in court all witnesses, facts, and experts who are available and necessary for the proper protection of the rights of his client. It is immaterial that such procedure increases the cost to the carrier beyond the policy coverage limits. In other words, our duty to that employer actually exceeds the fiduciary responsibility of the carrier to that employer. So that's a very significant and important relationship. Um, now, the insured is our first client. Even though someone else is paying my bills, even though the insurance carrier is paying my bills, the insured actually is my actual client, and the, the fact that someone else paying my bills is uh, immaterial to the uh, vigor and the level of advocacy that I must bring on behalf of that employer. Um, the rules of professional conduct 1.1, 1.3, 1.7 say I owe an undeviated and single allegiance to that employer. I am prohibited from entering into any agreement that limits my ability to represent that insured zealously. Now, Defense counsel also is representing the insurance carrier at the same time. And again, I've got two clients. Although they're the payer, the insurance carrier actually does not have the right to control the defense. Um, and they try to or they want to, but that right to control me is limited by the duty that they also owe to their insurer. In other words, they have to put the insurer first. I've got to do a lot to make sure that I'm coordinating my duties under these two relationships that I'm managing at the same time. I have to provide accurate counsel. And in my experience, it's actually quite rare uh, that the interests of the insurance carrier or the employer diverge, right? Sometimes with a less sophisticated employer, don't quite understand what's happening in court, I have to spend a lot more time to bring them up to speed and explain to them, here's what's happening, here's the milestones, uh, again, I have the same duty as a claimant's counsel to keep them reasonably informed of the progress of the matter that I'm defending for them. Uh, but I have the, uh, this high duty to make sure they understand what's happening. And I have to put that employer first. I owe them a duty of self-abdignation, which means even if it personally hurts me or hurts my business, I still have to put their um, uh, best interest even above mine. The attorney, and there's, there's ABA uh, codes of conduct that say, uh, even though I'm selected and paid for by an insurance carrier, I still have to put that employer's um, uh, obligation first. Interestingly, 
there is case law in this jurisdiction and states that the workers' compensation carrier in general can settle claims without the consent of their insured. Unless they write that into the policy, in general, the carrier is in the driver's seat in terms of resolving claims. However, that is tempered by the fact that they do owe a fiduciary obligation to their own insured, and even though they can't disregard their own interests, they have to put that interest of that insured first and to make sure that it's an efficient and a practical settlement of those cases. Now, the chief way I see this being a challenge is when it comes to litigation billing guidelines, litigation management guidelines, and I'm often asked to sign on to litigation management guidelines, and I know that most carriers have a version of these things. These can create conflicts and sometimes need to be addressed. For example, where they state that only a specific amount of attorney effort or time can be expended on a matter without regard to case complexity. Limitations on how much work an attorney can do in a specific case. That actually violates one of the ABA model guidelines. Limitations on how many hours an attorney can work for any single client in a given day. That's a relatively common litigation management guideline, which, again, violates the model rules of conduct from the ABA. Impairment of the defense counsel's opportunity to present a complete and thorough defense through arbitrary limits on discovery. What does that mean? For example, let's say a litigation management guideline said we are not allowed to take depositions or are not allowed to issue subpoenas. I've never seen that, by the way, but these are hypothetical ideas. Or requiring owner's permissions to be granted before actual discovery can take place. Those types of things would impair the ability of defense counsel to fully and zealously advocate for the actual client, which is the employer or the insurer. So those types of things and guidelines need to be pushed back against by defense counsel so that the defense counsel can act within the rules of professional conduct. Another thing that we have to be wary as, particularly as defense counsel, is requests for representation made by an insurer or carrier that actually exceed the workers' compensation contract. So, you know, frequently in a workers' compensation case, we are asked to provide opinions or the employer will contact us as defense counsel and ask us questions about general HR policies. Hey, Greg, can I terminate this person? Can I, you know, how does this workplace policy interact? So I can give them advice within the realm of the workers' compensation case, but I really should not be giving them advice or counsel about general workplace policies, employment practices, or any other case that's pending for them. Only the case that's in front of us should be the subject of our communications. And another way this comes up is when we're asked to do things like releases and resignations, particularly a general release. Well, workers' compensation statutes do not cover general releases, particularly for things like wage and hour disputes, civil rights claims, or any other claims, you know, laws against discrimination, whatever other claims that could be brought against the employer. And so seeking things like general releases and seeking to have that be paid for or resolved under the workers' compensation case actually exceeds the workers' compensation policy limits, and so it shouldn't really be covered by something that the insurance carrier is being asked to foot the bill for. I also owe the same candor to the tribunal that claimant's counsel is required to demonstrate. This would be violated by me presenting false material facts or getting a witness to testify falsely, creating a document 
uh, or evidence out of whole cloth, failing to disclose legal authority and controlling jurisdiction. So in other words, I know that I'm making a legal argument which is contradicted by better authority or a decision on point. I'm not allowed to do that. Um, now, in our, my position on that is I don't have a duty to disclose every counter argument, but if there is uh, controlling legal uh, uh, um, opinion uh, that actually controls the point at law, then I do have to disclose that. Um, even where I'm presenting a case where my adversary has not responded, for example, I filed an RFA 2 uh, seeking that maybe um, evidence be precluded. When I go before the judge to ask the judge to sign that order, and the judge says, well, Greg, is there any reason I shouldn't sign this order? If there is good legal precedent on point, I actually have a duty to reveal that to the judge of compensation so that an unfair result cannot occur. Now, again, extraordinarily rare, but it's something that we have to keep in mind. Uh, the other thing that we have to be mindful as defense counsel is we are signing a lot of documents on behalf of the employer or the insured. Probably one of the most important documents we sign on behalf of them is the pre-hearing conference statements. And everything in there is considered a sworn statement. So, you know, uh, the judge is supposed to accept what's put before them in a pre-hearing conference statement as, as as if it is sworn to. And so for that reason, we have to be very mindful about making sure that there is accurate information in those documents. I have the same duties of cooperation with my adversary that opposing counsel has with me. I have an ethical duty to expedite litigation. That means we're not supposed to be going on adventures we're not supposed to be doing discovery that has absolutely no impact on the case. We're not supposed to be using uh, our, the litigation as a punishment, right? This is not lawfare. Uh, this is litigation. and We're not supposed to be needlessly drawing out litigation. We're also not supposed to raise frivolous points. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that every argument that we raise that we don't ultimately win on is frivolous. So, uh, again, we're not going to raise frivolous points, but sometimes we make arguments that fail. The judge doesn't agree with us. And I've actually had judges on the record say, Mr. Lois, you're arguing for preclusion. I think that this is frivolous. Mr. Lois, if you don't withdraw this argument of arguing for preclusion, I'm going to find that this is a frivolous controversy, and I'm going to fine you $500. And I look at him right now, I go, go ahead, judge. This isn't frivolous. I'm making my points. Counsel's here. They can make their points. You can you know, threaten me all you want that this is frivolous, but I don't believe it is. And in my experience, I've been doing this for 23 years. I've defended hundreds, maybe thousands of cases at this point. I've never gotten a penalty for frivolous litigation because the truth is you're allowed to make arguments that fail. A truly frivolous argument is one that you know in advance does not apply in this case. And in general, that's a waste of everyone's time, so it isn't done. All right. So I thought, I hope this was interesting. I know when we say the word ethics, People tend to tune out. So I wanted to um, approach this concept of talking about ethics by also talking about how we use it to attack our adversary's case, how we use it to get concessions, and how we use it to preclude their medical experts and medical testimony, which it is very useful and uh, to know the rules of ethics and know which regulations apply so that you can turn those tables on adversaries who, believe me, uh, need some pointers and some reminders about ethics in this uh jurisdiction. Now, I've also included two things in today's handouts, which are non-binding. And the first is the standard of civility for proceedings before the board. It's just a nice thing to take a look at uh, because that is how the board is expecting proceedings to uh, 
progress when they are going in workers' compensation court. But the second thing is subject number 046-124, and that's really the subject number that talks about the preclusion of testimony, the throwing out of medical records when there has been improper contact, typically by claimant's counsel with a doctor, and you can rely on that and use that subject number to get rid of medical uh, testimony and records which have been tainted by bad behavior on the part of the other side. All right, uh, let's move into some questions, and I'm hoping there's some questions. Look, if if we talk about ethics in New York and there's no questions, I know something's going wrong because uh, this uh, is really right uh, for a lot of issues. Um, I do think that in general, both sides are trying to put their cases in uh, as cleanly as we as they can. But if your defense counsel is not asking those questions, particularly of the treating physicians, as to their financial arrangements and who's been contacting them, I think that's a big miss. That's something we should be doing in every case. I can also tell you another case that I um, defended, and I don't see any questions here, so I'm just going to tell them one more story. Uh, I had another case where I defended, and the claimant's attorney hired two impartials. And they hired these two impartials to refute the statements of my independent medical expert. Well, I thought it was interesting when I started diving into these two impartials that they both had office addresses that were next to each other. And so I started thinking, well, are they really impartials? Because, A, they're selected by my adversary, right? So how impartial are they? But also, B, they seem to be sharing office space. And so when I spoke to one of the doctors, I said, oh, you know, is this your office? Do you treat patients there? Yes, 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 yes. Is my, I own the building. I talked to the other doctor, and they said, yeah, well, I am a, um impartial expert, but also I rent this space from the other doctor in the case. And so I said, well, that's your landlord, right? Okay, how much are you paying in rent? And it turned out to be $30 a square foot. I said, well, that's very far below the rental value of that uh, that space. And they admitted that. They said, well, you do have a financial relationship with them, don't you? I mean, you owe them rent. They're referring patients to you. You're not going to disagree with their opinion, are you? Not with your landlord who's sending you your patients, and that's how you're getting paid, right? So that was a great argument. The judge agreed with me and found that it was a questionable relationship. So, again, you got to ask those questions, and then you can use those ethical rules. I guess, okay, uh, question from Jalik. Jalik, I hope I'm saying that right. In regards to workers' compensation law, section 13-A, if we are sending a work assessment form on behalf of the employer to hopefully get some type of work restrictions and copying all parties, is this allowed under section 13-A or not? Asking because I've experienced claimants counsel who have treated us advising that sending work assessment form is not allowed. Okay, great question. Thank you, Julie. You can absolutely do that. Okay, you could send the doctor anything. You could send them, you know, videos of your nephew's birthday party last weekend if you want. You just have to copy all parties. Okay, uh, so communicating with the physician to say, here's the job I have for this person. Here's the work accommodations I can make. Can they do these work accommodations? That's absolutely fair. That's an absolutely fair question to ask. Uh, adversary counsel could scream and yell and get angry, but they can't stop it, particularly if you've copied them on it. So that is absolutely not a violation. In fact, if you want to have a little fun with this, go on YouTube, um, Google Fine Olin Anderson, that's a claimant's attorney's firm, and go look at the YouTube videos they've produced. They've produced one recently about um, things you should and should not say to an IME doctor. This is them counseling their own clients and saying to them that if the doctor asks you what kind of work you can do, 
and what kind of effort you can expend, you shouldn't answer those questions, right? That's crazy. Of course, the doctor should be asking questions like, are you working? What kind of work can you do? What kind of effort can you expend? But of course, claimants counsel don't want doctors asking those kinds of questions. They don't want the doctors informed. And so, of course, they're going to scream and yell and go crazy over questions like that. So, uh, Julie, you're completely within your rights to do that. You can say, again, anything you want to the treating physician, as long as you copy it all sides, that's not going to be undue influence. Okay? Uh, so great question, and thank you for asking. All right, I'm scrolling down here. I don't see any other questions pending, so I guess we must have covered it today. Guys, thanks for joining. I hope everyone has a really great, uh, wonderful Thanksgiving, and I can't wait to see you uh, next month when we talk about our next topic. So thanks for joining us again. Uh, I always be uh, come, come on in. If you ever want to come to these webinars live, I've got a 175-seat auditorium here uh, that's ready for you to come in, so let me know if you ever want to come if you're over in the area. Uh, and want to visit us. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great week, and happy Thanksgiving. Bye.